Amen. Well, it's good to see you guys. Let's uh, go ahead and go right to prayer, and we'll get, we'll get into uh, this rich and profound and beautiful text of Scripture. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the privilege of sitting before your word. We are grateful that we get to do this every week. We are thankful, and we pray that you would transform us through this. We don't just do this because it's what we're supposed to do as a, supposed to do as a church. We do this because this is, this is your word, and we love you, and we fear you, and we want to follow you, and we want to be transformed. So, Lord, may this not be a mechanical exercise, but come. We plead with you on behalf of this whole church that you would come through the power of your spirit, that you would anoint your word beyond anything that I am able to do, surely, certainly, and that you would come and you would penetrate us with this word and transform us forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a young man uh, who grew up in a wealthy family of a major city in a very sophisticated culture. Uh, as a child, he was immersed in the orthodox religion of his country. He attended one of the most well-known worship centers in his land. Uh, he became a disciple under the, one of the most influential leaders uh, of his time. He was a zealot for his faith. He passionately devoured its teachings. He pursued its enemies but then something remarkable happened, something quite amazing, surprising. All of a sudden, somehow this man became convinced that the very people that he was opposing were right about their faith. And though they were small in number and despised by his culture, this young man left his religion and he joined the ranks of the very people he used to oppose so he entered into a period of intense study. He was praying and fasting in order to spread his new faith. In subsequent years, although his convictions and actions cost him his reputation, his comforts, uh, his freedom, and ultimately his life, he never wavered from his faith. His name? His name was Jabril al-Amriki. He grew up in Atlanta and attended a well-known Baptist church before becoming a Muslim and joining the allies of Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda, and dying at the turn of the century while participating in a jihadist attack intended to, quote, plant a flag for Islam in Kashmir. Kashmir is that little piece of land that India and Pakistan have been fighting over for years. Now, before hearing his name, I wonder if maybe you were thinking that I was describing the Apostle Paul. Because the parallels are actually remarkable here. Um... Paul, instead of being a Muslim extremist, was still a man very devout for his faith. The, the parallels are striking. Each man was raised in a religious system that he would one day oppose. Both were willing to study and make great sacrifices for the spread of their faith. But that's actually where the parallels stop. Because in reality, these men are totally different. I mean, in some ways, they cannot be more diametrically opposed to one another. One man's life was based on grace and a relationship with a very personal uh, intimate God. The other was based on a rigid obedience to a cold and impersonal God. One life led to violence, while the other led to a sacrificial love toward others. Now, as we get into Ephesians 3, let me say something about the theme of this passage. Uh, you'll notice, if you look carefully at the text before you, that the word mystery occurs four times in verses 1 through 13, Paul uses this word mystery really to describe what God is up to in this world. 
And uh, what, what is God's agenda? What's he doing? And he uses this word mystery to unveil God's plan and purpose in our day. In fact, he tells us in verse 6, and to the shock of his original audience, that the mystery of the gospel is the distribution of grace to both Jews and Gentile sinners. That as it pertains to the dispersing of grace, we are all on equal footing. And not only this, but God is bringing together Jew and Gentile into one people. In essence, Paul is describing the indiscriminate, promiscuous grace of God and his love for all sinners. He's saying that God's love is indiscriminate. It goes out not just to Jews, but to Gentiles. That God's love is, his grace is promiscuous in that it is going after absolutely pagan people. And that's what God is up to, regardless of who you are, regardless of where you've come from, regardless of what you've done, good or bad, every single one of us in this room are identical at the point of need. Now, that idea, amazingly, was totally unacceptable in Paul's day. I mean, it would have been a cultural shocker for anyone in his audience to entertain the notion that God was for Gentiles just as much as he was for Jews. Get out of the church, man, because we're not going to listen to that kind of preaching. That God is for Gentiles, Gentile sinners as much as Jews. I mean, it was scandalous to assert that non-Jewish people have equal access to God because of what Jesus has done. And, and that was, this is Paul's way of explaining kind of what happened, what exactly happened when the, when the curtain was torn in two, when the veil was torn from top to bottom, granting equal access for all sinners through faith in Jesus Christ. In short, what Paul is explaining is that while our sin reaches far, God's grace reaches farther. And, and that's why, that's the way it always is with God's grace, is it not? Isn't that your testimony? Your sin reached really far. And to the point to where you thought, some of you, that there's no hope for me, but God's grace reached farther. And that's our hope, and that's your hope if you have a child in that condition, if you have a husband or a wife or a mom or a dad, is that God's grace can always reach farther than our sin. And that's our hope. And it reaches, God's grace does, in some pretty surprising directions. Like Gentiles, Gentile sinners. God's love comes to these unclean, incompetent Gentile sinners. By the way, that's the only kind of sinner there is. Unclean and incompetent. Nobody is prepared. Nobody is able. Nobody has done anything to deserve God's favor. We are all the same, as I said, at the point of need. And so the cross is what unites every kind of sinner. Now, that's the point of these verses, all right? So the sermon's preached, okay? That's the essence of this text. But I wanted you to grab the point before we start unpacking this kind of phrase by phrase. If you're a guest with us, we love to do this with Scripture. Just pick apart phrase by phrase and look through Scripture very carefully because we want God to set the agenda for the teaching and preaching of our church and not ourselves, So we're going to look at this text, and in this text, Paul unpacks this theme that I just gave you, and he does so while giving us kind of a biographical sketch of his life. It's kind of interesting. This is an autobiography Paul's giving us in verses 1 through 6. He's kind of telling us about his life and his ministry at the same time that he's unpacking this incredible theme. So two points this morning. 
the life of Paul and the ministry of Paul. We're going to look at Paul's life first. Let's read verses 1 through 2, 1 and 2. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now let's stop right there. I don't know if you see in your Bible there's a little dash before verse 2. That's because Paul interrupts himself. It, It appears that Paul is actually about to pray a prayer. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you, and he's about to go into that prayer, but he actually doesn't pick up that prayer until verse 14. So if you fuse together verse 1 and verse 14, you'll see that, that it's a continuous prayer. So, so really, verses 2 through 13 is Paul interrupting himself. He's taking a, a digression. He's moving away from his prayer for a moment because he wants to explain who he is. You say, why would Paul want to explain who he is to the Ephesians? Well, it's very simple. Paul, at this point, has been gone from the church in Ephesus for at least four years, if not five years. He's in prison. And so the church in Ephesus would have been a very growing church. It would would have been booming. And so when Paul is addressing them, there are numerous people that would not have known Paul. So he is reintroducing himself to the church in Ephesus. So we get a real sense now of what this man was like. Who was Paul? And we see two things really about him. The the two things that come out in verse 1 are quite clear. One, Paul was a man who was willing to die to self. And two, Paul was a man who was willing to live for others. Look at how he describes himself in verse 1. He uses two titles. The first is so familiar that you just pass over it with your eyes. You don't even think about it. Paul. He calls himself Paul. Now think about this. He used to be called Saul. But now he's referred to and he calls himself Paul. Well, we know that God changed his name, but what does the word Paul, the name Paul, mean? Interestingly, it actually comes from a Latin root, which means little. So, in a sense, we have big Saul, who is this prominent figure in in Jewish culture, this great scholar, big Saul, who becomes little Paul. And that's no mistake. God changes his name, but what name does he gravitate toward? What name does he want to attribute to himself? It's the name Paul. That's how he introduces himself. It's a very humble admission that God had taken a prideful and arrogant man in Jewish culture and brought him to his knees, a persecutor of the church, a God-hater, a Christian hater, and had changed his heart and had disposed him to, to, to a new life of giving glory to God. And so Paul uses that term. Second, He describes himself as a prisoner. All his life, Paul knew prestige and he knew power and he knew reputation. He was a strong man. But now he finds himself a prisoner under a pagan ruler. Now, humanly speaking, Paul was a prisoner of Nero. And so that's how Paul could have introduced himself. But Paul was so convinced that his whole life was under the sovereignty of God, including his imprisonment under the lordship of Christ, that Paul prefers to call himself a prisoner of Christ and not a prisoner of Nero. Paul says, Nero is not, my attachment is not to Nero. Nero can knock me down. Nero can put me in prison. Nero can destroy my body. But my closest association and relationship was with Jesus Christ. I am a prisoner of Jesus. 
And that's how Paul identifies himself. What Paul is teaching us is that dying to self here requires a willingness to forsake personal privilege. When Paul decided to follow Jesus, when when God met him on the road to Damascus, Paul was giving up personal privilege. He was giving up his title. He was giving up his prestige. He was giving up all that he knew in Jewish culture. I mean, this is a guy who had risen to the top, and Paul is kissing it all goodbye for the sake of Jesus and his glory. And, and so this is a powerful thing that he's exemplifying to us. He's teaching us that dying to self requires a willingness to forsake privilege. And this is true whether you are a businessman or whether you're an athlete or an educator. This is true whether or not you're a mom or a dad. God may not require that level of sacrifice in your life. But listen, true devotion to God is always willing to forsake privilege for the sake of the gospel. And Paul is teaching us that very strongly. But Paul was not only willing to die to self, he's willing to live for others. Look at verse 1 again. In verse 1, he says that he's a prisoner of Christ for the sake of the Gentiles. In verse 2, he goes on to say, the stewardship of grace was given to me for you. So in short, Paul did not live his life for himself, but for others. Now, you can imagine the temptation of Paul to think here, what am I doing here? I mean, I used to command soldiers, but now soldiers are commanding me. I used to be admired, but now I'm despised. I used to be a ruler, but now I'm a servant. And Paul could be tempted to say, what happened to me? But Paul knew that any genuine calling to God requires a willingness to give up positions of power and prestige. Paul was not living for himself. When God calls Paul to himself, he calls him to a selfless life. And and that's Paul's life. He was willing to die to self and to live to others. And we could say a lot more about Paul's life. But what I want to do now is transition into his ministry, and I want to spend most of our time here, verses 2 through 6. And... uh, In these verses, Paul describes his ministry, and we see again two things. He was first a steward of God's grace, and secondly, he was sent to proclaim the mystery of Christ. Now, we want to unpack those things. A steward of God's grace. What does that mean? In order to be a steward of God's grace, you have to first be a recipient of God's grace, right? You can't be an administrator of something you're not familiar with. You can't be a herald for the gospel, a proclaimer of the gospel, an evangelist, unless you've first been saved. And so what Paul is saying here is that he's a steward. He's been a recipient of God's grace. Grace, he says, Paul says, was given to him. Look at that language. Now, when you look at Paul's conversion story in the book of Acts, you know, this this marvelous scene where he's on the road to Damascus and this blinding light comes and knocks him off his horse. You will see how, in just what way, Paul became a recipient of God's grace. But actually, there are two other passages in the New Testament that shed some pretty good light on Paul's uh, account of how he received God's grace. One of them is Galatians chapter 1. Turn there, Galatians 1, uh, verses 13 through 16. And I want to read that together with you slowly uh, so that you can really get a sense and a flavor of what Paul means when he said he received God's grace. The Word of God is beautiful. I love this phrase here in Galatians 1. This is what Paul says. Just flip over a couple pages to the left in your Bible if you don't know where Galatians is and you'll find it. 
uh, Galatians 1, 13. Paul says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. What was he doing? He says, How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Notice what else is in Paul's life. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the, note this, traditions of my fathers. Then we have this great but again in Scripture. But when he, that is God, who had set me apart, notice this, before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul is saying that there is a time when he was trying to destroy the church of God. Paul is saying there's a time, listen, when I was trying to kill Christians, there was a time when I was not a, quote, seeker of anything, of Jesus. There was a time when... When, when I wasn't, look, I wasn't trying to figure out whether or not Jesus was the Messiah or not. I wasn't reading Ravi Zacharias. I, I wasn't reading Josh McDowell's More Than a Carpenter. I, I wasn't reading Lee Strobel's Case for Christ or C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. I rejected Jesus and I was compelled to destroy the church of God. I was a blasphemer. I was a murderer. I was a persecutor of Christians. That's what Paul's saying. In other words, Paul wasn't looking for Jesus to do anything in his life. He didn't give a rip about Jesus. Paul wasn't searching for salvation. Now, I want you to think about a theology of salvation here. Here's Paul, persecutor of God, hater of God, enemy of the church, killer of Christians, not looking for Jesus at all. He's on the road to Damascus, and bam, God shows up in his life. Moves with power upon him. Saves him. And, and he's not looking, he's not searching for salvation. Why wasn't he not certain? Well, Paul thought that his faith was enough. His Jewish faith was enough. Paul thought that he already had salvation in, in God's economy. And that, and that his role was to destroy these Christians of, quote, the way. That were messing up Jewish society. Now, this is Paul's trajectory until he says here in Galatians that God was pleased To reveal his son to me. And then he says that God set me apart before I was born. Now do you see the sovereignty of God in salvation here? No wonder he preaches about the sovereign grace of God in predestination and election in chapter 1. I mean, it's so obvious why he would do that. Because he has personally experienced this. He says, God set me apart before I was even born. Now what kind of sovereign activity is that? It's clear Paul, Paul's trajectory was one of, uh, of, of danger, of losing his own life and his soul, but God intervened. So here's what we need to extract here from Ephesians 3. Paul viewed the grace of God and salvation not only as the means by which he was saved, but hear this, but as, the, as a stewardship which was now given to him. In other words, Paul assumed that the purpose of God showing him grace was that he would in turn show grace to others. So your salvation doesn't terminate on yourself, in other words. Your your salvation is not an end in itself, 
but it's a means by which God would save others. That's what he means by stewardship. Is that the way you look at your salvation? Or has, you know, has this thing kind of become all about you? You know, praise God, I'm saved. I'm I'm out from underneath the wrath of God. Praise God that I'm free from, from, you know, the, 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 the... the sin that used to shackle me, I'm free from some of that slavery that used to held me in bondage, you know, drugs and alcohol abuse or whatever, and, and praise God that I'm free from that. And you know what? And I get to go and, and, and be in heaven with God someday, and I get to worship with God's people, and hey, and I love my Christian community, and we have a great time, and we're really close together, and you know, and God, isn't it great living the Christian life, and my kids are are sheltered and we have a safe environment at home and we know God and we have family devotions together and, and, and man, life is great. And, you know, and we get so insular and so inward and we forget that God did not just save you to keep you from hell, but he saved you to make you a steward of God's grace. And Paul is saying, look, this is my example. And I want you church, I want you Heritage Baptist Church to learn to live your life like me. I want you to be a steward of God's grace. That's what he's teaching us here. It's powerful. So this is Paul's ministry. He's a steward of God's grace. Secondly, he was sent to proclaim the mystery of Christ. Now, that phrase is going to be confusing to you, probably. I mean, what does that mean? If we did a pop quiz, what, do, what is the mystery of Christ? I, I, I wonder how many could just rattle that off quickly. It's a difficult phrase, and so we're going to look at that. We see this in the next verse. Paul says, The mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. Now, before we talk about this word mystery, I want you to notice that it was made known to Paul by divine revelation. That is, the apostles were recipients, all the apostles, including Paul, were recipients of direct revelation from God. Now, I said, if you can remember two weeks ago, we had Mother's Day sermon in between. Two weeks ago, I said that for the apostles and prophets to be Ephesians 2.20, the foundation of the church fundamentally means that the church is built on the foundation of the Word of God because the apostles received direct revelation. They spoke it and they wrote it down. So that's what it means for apostles and prophets to be the foundation of the church. It's the word of God. So these New Testament apostles and prophets, they wrote and spoke the word of God. And because they wrote and spoke it, we have the privilege of understanding these things. That's why Paul says in verse 4, this is neat language. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, if you want to understand God and his ways then you have to read. Very simple. Very simply, he's just saying you have to read. God has revealed himself to us in his word. And if you want to know God, you can't just sit. You have to read. Or someone, if you can't read, has to teach you or read to you or instruct you. But but understanding God and knowing God comes from reading his word. And, and, And we get our revelation of who God is through his word. Now, this is a crucial point because in our culture, we have lost this. In our churches, we have lost this. So this is be a really good time for me to, to just kind of pause. 
Let's do a little digression here for a moment. Let's talk about the doctrine of revelation, specifically the Word of God. When we call the Bible the Word of God, what we're saying is to call the Bible the Word of God is to claim that it is the unique and faithful statement of God's self-revelation to mankind. When we talk about the Bible, we're talking about the way in which God has chosen to disclose Himself. I want to reveal myself to you, God says, and, and here's how I'm doing it in my word. And, and so when we talk about the Bible, we're talking about the way God has chosen to reveal his will and his purposes to us. And God reveals himself in order that we might know and love him and trust him and serve him and obey him as Lord. So in verse 4, what we see here is really something of the dy- dynamic of Scripture. Maybe this is helpful to you, but I would encourage you to think about God's revelation in three stages. Okay, Number one, the act of revelation, where God reveals the gospel and its truth to the apostles and the prophets. God speaks to his apostles and prophets. Okay, That's the act of revelation. Then secondly, we have the act of inspiration, where the apostles take what they hear from God, they write it down, And they write down the record of that revelation. And then finally, stage three, is the act of illumination. And that's where God takes the word from the page right here and he puts it into your heart. And really, these are the stages of revelation. From God to the apostle, from the apostle to the page, and from the page to your heart and mind and soul. And so Paul encourages Ephesians to read the scriptures. Now... That's why we are so emphatic as a church about being word-driven. The Word and the Spirit are always together. The Spirit blesses His Word. I don't know why it is like this, but it seems that you have either sort of really dense theological word-driven churches with little spirit, or you tend to have a lot of sort of Pentecostal excess and lots of seeking of the Holy Spirit, but very thin on the Word. And that's just a shame. Because God has told us that if you want to put gas and fire together, you must have the Word and the Spirit. And when the Word and the Spirit are together, the Spirit blesses His Word, the Word exposes the Spirit to you, and those two things come together and produce a dynamic church and a dynamic life. But I want to say something about how we've gone off track here on this. The church has a lot of soul-searching to do on this point. Somewhere in the last 20 years, the American church in particular has bought into this philosophy that the most important thing we can do, hear me, is to cater to the emotional needs of our people. Something about this. And so we manufacture emotion in the church. And the problem is that feelings have come unhinged from the mind. Now emotion is good, but when it is divorced from the mind, it's dangerous. Feelings are meant to follow truth. They're not meant to be an end in themselves. But in the American church, we've moved toward emotion and feeling, hear this, without truth. And increasingly, people know less and less about why they believe what they believe. Instead, people are just looking for a feeling. If you take the average Christian kid, or maybe even adult, sadly, 
from anywhere in the United States and you ask them questions about God and man and sin and salvation and the future, you'd be shocked to understand how little they know about this God that they worship. They, they may not know God at all, theologically or doctrinally, but man, they'll tell you all day long how they feel about Him. They'll walk out of a service worshiping a God they really don't know and tell you how great the experience was that they had with God. Is that true? Have you seen this? This is a problem in our culture. The church is filled with experience seekers. It's filled with people who are drunk on emotion but starving from the truth. But as the saying goes, what you win people with is what you win them to. And the kind of stuff that churches, sadly, even in our own community, are winning people to is so often empty and void. People walk out of an emotionally charged service thinking that they had an encounter with God, but really it was counterfeit. And the evidence is that you see little to no life change. Kids excited about Man, I had a great encounter with God. Well, let me ask you this. Are you growing in holiness? I had such a powerful encounter with God. And, and, I, and I go to this church where every Sunday, man, we, we have this emotionally charged, powerful encounter with God. But man, Monday through Saturday, you look at their life and you're seeing a huge disconnect. The stuff you're talking about on social media, the, the text that you're sending back and forth, your impure physical relationships with your boyfriends and girlfriends, There's a huge disconnect. But man, praise God, we had an awesome encounter with God on Sunday. Did you really? Did you really have an encounter with God? Listen, friends, you cannot have an encounter with a holy God and not be transformed. So this must be counterfeit. When is the church going to wise up? This epidemic has resulted in churches filled with unregenerate people and baby Christians. Churches filled with people that are either not saved or not growing. Where is the word of God? Why is the word of God not preached? Why is it that pastors feel comfortable standing up week in and week out and just giving you some warm, fuzzy thoughts that they had in their own quiet time? Tell some nice stories. You know, tell some funny things. And then walk away and sort of invite people to come to Jesus. Where are the men who are going to herald the word of God? Verse by verse, line by line, paragraph by paragraph, saying that this is all we need for life and godliness. But if we don't have this, what are we doing? I I get uncomfortable when I go to a place and I listen to a a man preaching and the whole time he's walking around, you know, he's not talking. And I'm like, get to scripture, man. Give me something that's in the Bible. We've gone 30 minutes now. I've heard like three or four stories. I've heard lots of funny things. You've really drawn us in. You're a great charismatic speaker and you have a gift. But man, give me Jesus. Give me the word. Give me God, man. But we live in a culture where, you know, that's just not popular, is it? Because that's not going to win and influence people. and, And, you know, that's not how you draw large crowds. I don't care about drawing a large crowd. You know what I care about? I care about being faithful to the God who purchased me with his blood. Here's the principle. If you start with truth, emotion will follow. 
But if you start with emotion, error is likely to follow. Now, don't misunderstand me. We need and want emotion and feeling, all right? I want lots of emotion and feeling, but here's the thing. Feelings are created by truth, and that means churches that are deeply word-centered ought to produce deep emotion and powerful feeling in the lives of its members. Because truth is meant to elicit emotion. My concern is just that when emotion is sort of just manufactured outside of truth. What's that? What I want is truth to start creating and manufacturing emotion. And when that happens, that's an awesome thing. So I just want to encourage you to be discerning, especially when you're choosing a church. So Paul is calling the church to read, all right? Because reading is the means by which we understand God. And that's how he reveals himself to us by reading verse 4 we get insight into the mystery of Christ. Now, what is this mystery? Paul tells us in verse 6, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, we said, I said at the very beginning of this message that the mystery of Christ is the fact that God's grace is now distributed to both Jews and Gentile sinners. God's plan was to bring together both groups into one people, which would have been an unthinkable thing. You, I mean, you take the, take, the, take the essence of sort of the, the greatest hostility between blacks and whites in America, sort of in the most highest of racial tension, and imagine putting them together in a church and saying, okay, you guys worship Jesus together, no problems, okay? I mean, it would have been that times a few more things to put Jews and Gentiles together. Now, Jews knew that Gentiles would be saved, so that wasn't the mystery. The mystery isn't that Gentiles are being saved now. That's not the mystery. They already knew that. Think about it. They had the Abrahamic covenant, which said, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the what? Ethne. All the Gentiles. All the nations would be blessed. Plus, they knew that the Messiah would receive, as the scripture said, the nations as his inheritance. And then Jesus comes, and what does Jesus do? He preaches to his disciples and asks them to go and proclaim to the Gentiles. So they knew that salvation was coming to the Gentiles. That was not the mystery. What was a mystery, however was the fact that the Jewish nation under God's rule would be terminated and replaced by a new international and multi-ethnic community called the church. That was a mystery. It was the idea that was so radically new to them. This is what God revealed to Paul and to the others in these other New Testament apostles and prophets. Now, by the way, let me just say this quick word here. These are New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets. The reason why we know that is because that that Paul's not referring to Old Testament prophets here is because he says in verse 5 that this mystery was hidden in other generations. If it's hidden in other generations, it's hidden from the prophets as well. But now it has been revealed to his holy apostles first and prophets second. So this is New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets. Well, what was revealed to them? Verse 6. What was revealed to them is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ. Verse 6. Fellow heirs. They're fellow heirs because God had promised to Abraham that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And then Romans 8, 17 teaches us that that all of God's children are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And finally, this idea of inheritance, of course, points back to, as we saw early in Ephesians, 
the future time when we will dwell together with Christ on a new earth. We will receive an inheritance. And so the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Second, they're members of the same body. Paul is saying that Gentile Christians have been incorporated into the same body as Jewish believers. They're becoming a new society. They're becoming a church. They're becoming one people. And this picks up on the theme of verses 19 through 22 that we saw two weeks ago, where we see God building for himself one new humanity, the church. And then third, they're fellow partakers of the promise. Now this third privilege is really the climax. The term promise refers back to two earlier passages in Ephesians where Paul talks about the covenants of promise. And then he talks about, remember this, the Holy Spirit of promise. And so by which believers are sealed. So to be a fellow partaker then is to receive the Holy Spirit. To be a partaker is to have the Holy Spirit for yourself. It is a very personal gift. God is promising blessings for his people. But the greatest blessing that he gives his people in this life is the Holy Spirit. So to sum it up, we could say that the mystery of Christ is this incredible union of Jews and Gentiles in Christ. God's purpose was to create one new man, one new body, the church, in which Jew and Gentile would share equally as fellow members, fellow heirs, fellow partakers of the promise originally given to Abraham. Now, as I said, this revelation would have been shocking to them. So Paul drops this bomb and says, there is now no distinction between Jew and Gentile as it concerns the distribution of God's grace. None. Okay, so this is a bomb. The Jews were the ones who had been given the law and the prophets and the special attention of God. And so to say now that these non-law-abiding, uncircumcised, filthy, irreligious people have equal access to God because of Jesus, I mean, that was a cultural bomb. You're kidding, right, Paul? Like, get out of here. You can't preach this way. That's an explosion. One of the clearest examples that this was a major problem in the early church is when Paul confronts Peter over this very issue in Galatians. Peter, remember that scene where Peter's eaten with, a, with, with uncircumcised believers? And he's eating with them, he's hobnobbing with them, and all this stuff is going on. But, but when, when the people of James came, the Jews, what did he do? He walked away. He acted like he didn't even know those Gentile people. And what does Paul do? This is Clash of the Titans, man. Paul gets up in Peter's face, and Paul tells him, listen, man, you're out of step with the truth of the gospel. You know what he says? He literally says, you're not orthopedetoing. You're not walk, straight walking. We go to a podiatrist as a foot doctor. Orthodox, ortho means straight. So if you're not orthopedetoing, you're, you're not walking straight. In other words, Paul's telling Peter, you're a drunk man. You're drunk in your application and understanding of the gospel. You can't walk away from uncircumcised believers just because your Jewish friends come by. What is your understanding of the gospel, man? And he confronts Peter and just tells him, this is wrong. This is a big deal in the early church. Now, here's what all that means for us. It means that there's a universal solidarity between all men. We're all the same in sin. Which means that there are no grounds, whether ethnic, economic, social, or religious, to segregate. No grounds. We are all the same when it comes to our need, and we are all the same when it comes to our salvation. But for some reason, we forget this truth. Functionally speaking, we forget this, and so we try to justify ourselves by comparing ourselves to other 
others. We, we do it all the time. It's instinctive. We don't even realize that we're doing it. I mean, I may not be as beautiful as her, but I'm smarter. Uh, see, I'm breaking this down to a more functional level, okay, how we do this. I may not be as successful as him, but my marriage is better. He may be a better student, but I'm a better athlete. He may have more money, but I'm less materialistic. She may have a bigger house, but I guarantee I'm more hospitable than her. We do this all the time. We try to validate our existence by comparing ourselves to other people. We're trying to find a way to kind of get a leg up on the next guy to show that how in some way we are better. So naturally we look down on other people in order to feel good about ourselves. I've often said it's kind of interesting, but when I'm in counseling sessions or, and you're meeting with people and you, have, you hear such terrible stories, you can, in a, some sick and twisted way, walk away from that thinking, man, you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm doing better. You feel better about yourself because you're not walking through that. That's sick. Like, that's messed up to do that. Siblings do this. Husbands do this. Wives do this. Politicians do this. Christian leaders do this. Churches do this. Well, your church may be bigger than ours, but our teaching is more solid. Well, you Presbyterians may have better theology, but we Pentecostals know how to worship the living God better. Really? And, and where this really gets subtle is our interaction with the world. I want to challenge you on this point. Christians say, we are what's right with the world, and they are what's wrong. Listen. As soon as we begin to define ourselves by how we are unique and therefore better, we are standing on a foundation of self-righteousness. And we have forgotten that at the point of sin, we are no better. At the point of salvation, we are just as needy. Now, ironically and paradoxically, this truth is actually liberating to us. Because trying to live your life to demonstrate how you are better or more worthy than someone else is an exhausting life. Just look no further than Facebook. But the cross levels the playing field. It unites sinners from all stripes, which means very practically, Jews can no longer look at Gentiles and have a sense of superiority. Republicans cannot look at Democrats and have a sense of superiority. White people cannot look at black people and rich people and poor people. And Christians can't even look at non-Christians and fundamentally think they are any better because at the foot of the cross... We are all broken and busted up sinners. And God means to drive us to that humility, to see our desperate need of his rescue. And at the deepest point of our need, we are exactly the same. And as I said, this is unbelievably controversial because Jews would have been the equivalent of inside the church people. People who grew up in the church and Gentiles would have been the equivalent of outside the church people. People who did not grow up in the church. And for Paul to come in and say that the Jews are no better off before God than the Gentiles is almost unthinkable. Now we agree, of course, with that theologically, but functionally speaking, we act like we have a leg up because we were born into a Christian home or because we've been churched our whole life. But the reality is we don't deserve the grace of God any more than Jokar Saranev who received the death penalty this week for his Boston Marathon bombing. We don't. So this is, this is what the gospel does. It humbles us. It calls us to a level of humility. And getting to that point of humility, hear this, is the difference between life and death, spiritually speaking. Because if, if you never get to that point of humility and that desperation, you're not saved. 
It's the difference between a superficial church-going Christian who thinks, man, he's got it together versus a real, humble, honest disciple of Jesus who knows he's jacked up. And I hope our church is filled with people who know they are jacked up. But they're, but they're saved and fixed and remedied and, and, and wonderfully put back together by God's grace. See, salvation doesn't come to the qualified. It doesn't come to the worthy or morally upright. Grace is not for a Jewish race. Grace is not for a Gentile race. Grace is for any human being that acknowledges his unrighteousness before God, whether that be in the form of a self-righteous Pharisee or a sin-loving atheist. The gospel is for both the religious sinner and the irreligious sinner. So let me encourage you with the gospel as, as I close here. Some of you may be in such patterns of sin right now that you're thinking, man, there is no way that I can receive grace from God. I'm disqualifying myself right now in my seat. And Paul comes to you this morning with great good news and says, grace is for the unqualified. Grace is for the unrighteous. Grace is for the unloving and the unlovable. Grace is God's rescuing I love you in Jesus. And it comes your way if you will simply acknowledge your need. Salvation is God's wrestling you out of your sinful self-reliance and into a broken dependence on him. So I'm just thankful that God's grace comes to fools. I'm a fool. And I'm so grateful that God's grace comes to fools and sinners like me. The gospel's for, this is scandalous. Okay, I'm just telling you, it's scandalous. The gospel is for sex addicts. The gospel is for adulterers. The gospel is for drug dealers, persecutors of Christians, child abusers, rapists, prostitutes, the uneducated, the arrogant, angry, and afraid. In other words, it's for you. It's for you. We are all those things. The seed and in some cases the fruit of all those sins can be found in your heart. I guarantee you. But hear me. You will never fully understand the curing power of the gospel until you understand the crushing power of your own sin. You will never appreciate the rescue until you come to terms with your desperation. We are on a level playing field when it comes to our need. There is no one who does good. No, not one. But there is one good man, and his name is Jesus. And he came to deliver wicked men from their sins. And he promises to wash you from all your sin. You just need to acknowledge your sin before him. You need to acknowledge your desperation. Plead with him to show you mercy. And I just want to encourage you, if you've not done that, why don't you do that right now in your seat? Take care of that, because Jesus has open arms for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Change us now through it, Lord. Transform us, wash us, remake us. We pray that we be corrected and stand corrected by your word and that we would just be different people, a different church. We are so thankful for this word and we pray your grace upon us now as we close and as we worship. And I pray and I ask that if there's anybody in here this morning who is thinking right now, you know, I'm that guy, I'm lost, I need Jesus, I'm totally away from him, that you would, Holy Spirit, send forth your spirit into his heart, that you'd be regenerating people right now. We, Lord, we pray that you would invite sinners to your, to your grace, even now, and that there's somebody would be saved through this service and this preaching of the gospel. We pray for your glory.
and for their good. In Jesus' name, amen.